today we're going to be continuing on in our series of the book of John. Uh, it's a series that we've been going into for, for kind of over a year with a little break here and there. Uh, most likely uh, what's going to happen is we'll have a few more weeks. Right now we're in John chapter 19. Uh, we'll be wrapping that up either this week or next week. Uh, and we'll probably have a few more weeks that will be in John. They'll be heading to Advent for Christmas. That's right, Christmas is just around the corner. Uh, anybody excited about that? Anybody not excited about that? It's just happening so fast. Um, but Christmas is just around the corner. Uh, with that, we'll be kind of getting out our, our Christmas schedule and holiday schedule with uh, small groups on Wednesday nights and church and, and all of that. We'll probably get that out next week. Um, but that's where we're kind of heading forward with this. And then we'll probably wrap up the book of John um, sometime in January or February. Um, at that, the way the schedule is kind of looking. But today, again, we're going to be in John chapter 19. Uh, we were in the same chapter last week, taking a look at uh, Jesus' care for his mother uh, and, and talking to her and John while he's on the cross and saying, look your mother and look your son. Uh, and just the provision uh, that he made both to physically care for his mom, uh, but also that spiritual consideration as well by asking John to do it uh, instead of necessarily one of his brothers who still at that point uh, was not recognizing him as Messiah or, or trusting in him for salvation. And then we looked at that care that we're supposed to have for one another as brothers and sisters, as, as Christ died to unite us uh, as family. Uh, today, though, we'll be going into verse 31 uh, and looking more at the death of Christ. And so I want to pray um, before we read scripture here. Uh, Lord, we come before you, uh, again, thankful that your word is alive and active, uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, that it will cleave through our worries, our cares, our fears, our anger, um, the stress of this world, uh, down into the deepest parts of us where we desperately need you to continue to work within our lives. Uh, I pray that we would be clay in your hands today, uh, that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed, healing where healing is needed, um, and guidance where we need guidance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 31, John chapter 19. Uh, it says, since it was preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was uh, a special day. And so again, this is where uh, three men are on the crosses at this point. Uh, the Jews do, don't want them to stay up during this time. So they requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken, uh, that their bodies may be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with them. Uh, and so again, this was done in order to kind of speed up uh, the time of death. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs because they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with the spear and at once blood and water came out. Uh, he saw this as testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. For these things happen so that scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Also, another scripture says, they will look at the one that they pierced. So there's a couple of things to kind of take out of this passage. Uh, the first one uh, is just kind of the continued fulfillment of prophecy regarding Jesus Christ being the Messiah. Uh, it's something that John has pointed out throughout his entire gospel. Uh, he's continuing to do it here by mentioning Psalm 34 and that not one of his bones will be broken. And Zechariah chapter 12, uh, that he would be pierced. The second thing in this section uh, is that John is 
almost uh, painstakingly taking this and using it as an opportunity to give proof and witness that Jesus was human. That he was fully God. He starts that off in the beginning of John chapter 1. Uh, you know, and the word was God and makes that declaration of Jesus being God. But he's also in this moment taking the time to make sure this understanding of him being fully human as well. The time that John had written this particular book, there had been some different teachings that were starting to slip into the church. Uh, one of them being that Jesus wasn't actually in physical form, but that rather he was a spirit that people happened to see. Uh, and so John here is writing this in a way and saying that, that because Jesus had died, they took this spear, um, and in that, blood and water came out. And even scientifically, uh, the effects of the cross on a person as they were there. And again, because we have a lot of kids in with us this morning, you can look up the details of that a little bit more. Um, but part of the process of what would happen to a body would literally um, cause a, a buildup of fluid and water-like substance within the lungs um, as he would have been on the cross. And again, you can look up the details. It's really interesting. Um, but that is a scientific thing that would have happened so that when he was pierced, both blood and water would have come out. Uh, and in that, this uh, empirical evidence of him being human in, in a body. Uh, and not only that, but also he did die. It, it wasn't like he fainted on the cross uh, and then they took him down and they put him into it and he kind of woke up again. But that literally he died on the cross is what John is making sure is declared. Uh, and then he makes this statement in 35. He who saw this testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. Uh, not only this, the Pharisees would have been there seeing this happen. They're like, all right, he's dead. Uh, and that's why they wanted to seal the tomb. And they put soldiers around it uh, because they wanted to have that proof of he was just human. And not fully God and fully human. Uh, and so John's making these points in here uh, in order to point to Jesus being both. And he's been doing it throughout the book of John. Uh, but what I want to focus on this morning is, is something that happened just before this. Uh, so a few verses back in verse 28. And so this is taking place right after Jesus has this interaction uh, between John and his mother. Uh, and it says, verse 28, after this... When Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing up his head, he gave up his spirit. Again, he's pointing to this aspect of Jesus' humanity in the fact that he was thirsty, uh, and so he's asking for wine at this point. They, they give him to the wine to him, and he receives it. He actually drinks it this time. Uh, within other Gospels, we can see a different instance of wine. Uh, in Mark chapter 15, there's another passage in Matthew where he's offered wine, and he actually refuses it at that point because that particular wine was mixed with gall or was mixed with myrrh. Uh, it was oftentimes given to people about to be executed uh, because it would kind of dull the pain. Uh, and Jesus refused to take that, which I find to be um, really interesting when you consider the reason for that. Jesus didn't want to dull the sacrifice. He didn't want to dull the pain. He didn't want to dull 
the suffering. And I don't think that's necessarily a, a choice that many of us would, would necessarily make, right? Like, like we're about to die. And, and most of us, and in fact, there are whole pharmaceutical regimens that happen and take place in order to kind of ease someone's passing so that it isn't painful. But, but here Jesus is intentionally choosing not to take the drugged wine because he didn't want to ease his sufferings. He did not want to cheapen the price that was paid. The whole point of heading to the cross was ordered to, to bear the sufferings, to bear the penalty of sin on our behalf in order to pay this priceless sacrifice to redeem us from being chained to sin and death. And in that, he did not want to cheapen it. He was committed to bearing the full sin and shame in our place uh, for you and for me. And so that was the refusal of that first one. But this second one, he takes simply because uh, he's thirsty. And it's almost like at this point, he just had this conversation with John and his mother. uh, And in that, he's having a difficulty in speaking at this moment. So he asks for wine. After the wine in other Gospels, it'll say that he has this loud cry that he puts out that doesn't necessarily put words to the loud cry as he gives up his spirit. Uh, But here John puts words to this where Jesus' declaration is, it is finished. So most likely crying that out, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gives up his spirit. There's a couple of different interesting things here, and I want to get more into that aspect of it is finished. Uh, but at the same time, the, the words here within the original language where it says he gave up his spirit um, is this willing control on Jesus' aspect. This, this is not language here that is saying, well, he finally succumbed to his wounds or, or that his heart stopped. But, but literally what this is saying via many different commentaries is he literally gave up his spirit. And so exercising that aspect of being fully God and fully man, it is finished. And then he in control then lets it go in the fulfillment and completion of all things and, and not succumbing to this. Uh, and so he does that. But then these words here, it is finished, uh, is actually one word. It's just one word within that language. He's, he's making a statement, uh, possibly one of the most profound words ever uttered uh, is Strong's G5055, uh, which is tel, tel estai. It's based on the Greek word teleo or teleos. And we've talked about this uh, in many different times, that word teleos means perfection, it means completion, it means um, being filled up to the absolute completion. You're filling a glass of water till it can't be filled anymore. Uh, that's what that root word is. Uh, and so this teltelestai um, is this declaration of it is finished. Uh, meaning to finish, fulfill, accomplish, uh, but also to pay. Uh, to perform something to complete uh, our finishing. And so within the context of this passage, there's two different meanings that we're going to consider. The first one being the work has been accomplished, and the second one being the bill has been paid. So as far as the work he was sent uh, to be accomplished, that he's saying it is finished, uh, we look to John chapter 3.16. 
For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so pointing to the very reason that Jesus stepped out of heaven willingly uh, to come and live here on earth for 30 some years to offer his life up as a sacrifice uh, was that goal and purpose and rescue plan that was prophesied all the way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis. John chapter 17, Jesus says this, as he's praying with his disciples, uh, he spoke these things, looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he might give eternal life to everyone that you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. Again, that knowing you, the only true God, the word here used is more than just an intellectual knowledge of God. It's not just knowing about Jesus, not just knowing that God exists, uh, but rather this word, um, which is uh, an aspect of gnosko, is this blending of intellectual knowing as well as experiential knowing. It's one thing to say we know about a sports star. It's a different thing to say, well, I, I know them. Like, we spend time together. They're, they're my friend. Uh, and so these two different meanings are put into place when it says that we have eternal life through knowing the only true God and the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ. It has to be more than just head knowledge. It has to be this relational experience that we know Jesus Christ deeply and what he's done for us. And as we walk with him through our life, uh, it's the interaction with him uh, as a personal, relatable God who loves us deeply. That's where we find salvation is walking through that and submitting to him uh, as our Lord and Savior. But then he wraps this passage up in verse 4 by saying, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. This word completing is that same Greek word, tetelestai, to mean that it is finished, it is accomplished, that it has been performed to what it was meant to be done. And so what Jesus is saying is, I was sent here to do this work of proclaiming the gospel. The gospel simply is, means good news. To, to proclaim the hope to mankind that it, the sacrificial system of, well, you sin and now you have to kill an animal. Now you sin and now you have to kill an animal in order to have a right standing before God. That that, that was coming to an end in Jesus' perfect sacrifice in, in order to reconcile a relationship between mankind and God that we can never have on our own. It was signifying uh, and he was signaling to us that the hope of grace meant an end to the striving of trying to be good enough for God to love us, to be good enough to find salvation and a hope of heaven. This was the good news that Jesus came to declare. That was the work that he had that was given to do that was finalized on the cross in that ultimate payment. John chapter 4, uh, verse 34, it's another one uh, where he's talking to the Samaritan woman. And if you remember that whole thing, um, he's, they're traveling, there's a well. Uh, Jesus goes to the well and he sends off his disciples to go and get food in the town. Jesus has this whole conversation with the Samaritan woman, ends up going to get the village. The village comes back. People are coming to a salvation at that point as they're recognizing um, Jesus and interacting with him. Um, and then what happens is the disciples come back with food 
And they're like, all right, we got you your lunch. And Jesus replies, like, I'm not hungry. And so then they're like, well, could somebody else give him food? His response here in verse 34 is, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, again, to telestai or teleos, to finish his work, is what Jesus replied to them. Uh, and so again, this was his focus. It was his greatest priority in life to the point where he would even not think so much about food when he hadn't eaten at that point yet. Because he was doing what he was sent to do. He was fulfilling and working and completing what his entire task was meant to be. And so this is that aspect. When Jesus stood on the cross, he takes that last drink. He cries out in a loud voice to Telestai. He's saying, it is done. What I have come to do, to proclaim good news, to open the eyes of the blind, to provide a path to spiritual resurrection for people who are ensnared by sin and death, it is done. Now what's interesting in this is that for him it is done, but we are also called to do the same work. John chapter 17, as he's continuing this prayer, where he's saying that he has glorified um, the Father by completing the work that you gave him to, gave Jesus to do, he now says this, a few verses later in verse 15, about his disciples. I'm praying that not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. We've been called and sent the same way that Jesus was. We look at John 3.16, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so he sent Jesus. Jesus came to the world around us. Then in verse seven, or 18 of John 17, it says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. This is speaking about us as the church. It's speaking about all believers in Jesus Christ. So in other words, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son. And his son has now sent the church so that everyone who believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. The declaration that Jesus is making in the same way that he came to the earth in order to be the light, in order to present the gospel, that was his work. And for him, it was accomplished. It was completed at the cross. But the truth is, we are sent in the same way that Jesus was sent. That we're called to do the same work that he was doing. And for Jesus, it is done. For us, it is not done. And so we look at these different things, the focus and priority that Jesus had in his life as he was living, also should be our same priority, should be our same focus. Our life is to be about our Father's work, to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the hope uh, of salvation, to point to Jesus Christ. And to do this with our entire life, even up to the point of sacrifice, if needed. 
And we can see that happening with the disciples years after Jesus had passed away, um, or not passed away, after the cross, rather, and risen up to heaven. Um, forgive me for that. But after he was gone, um, they died as martyrs. We can look at that happening even now in our contemporary world. But we get to do this as children of God, as we're adopted into his family, redeemed from sin and death, we're guided by Christ, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, um, and, and this is all what has been given to us in order to do this work, receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit, to do this work. And it's something that in our imperfection we can struggle uh, with this truth or this grand calling of being ambassadors, of being the children of God in this world. Which brings us then to the second aspect of this declaration of tetelestai, or it is finished. The second aspect again is the bill has been paid. This word tetelestai was commonly used at this time uh, in order to denote uh, paying tax or paying bills. When the bill was completed, it was tetelestai, it is finished. Uh, and so Jesus, by using this word, is making a declaration. Not only is his task done, but he's also making the declaration that the debt of humanity for sin has been paid. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, puts it this way. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. This redemption through his blood would be a payment that we could never make on our own. In essence, that was the entire provision of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Where sin against God meant death. But it could be redeemed, it could be paid for through an offering of a sacrifice. Jesus himself then was this sacrifice making this payment or this redemption through his blood. And then we are forgiven. And what his declaration is, it is paid. It is done. Colossians chapter 2 says, When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. It is paid. It is done. It is finished. We struggle in our life at times in living the fullness of the life that was paid for us uh, at the cross by Jesus. The, the full sense of being adopted as sons or daughters in Christ. The, the full freedom from sin and death and shame. The full freedom from guilt and condemnation. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is the declaration of truth. And yet we struggle through our life at times with this battle of shame and condemnation and feelings of guilt or inadequacy. And all of those things is something that Satan has been actively trying to do throughout the history of the church is to bring back those doubts, to bring back those accusations, to bring back the weight and burden of guilt that Jesus paid for at the cross. 
No, he can't bring it back. It is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. It is tetelestai. He can't put it back on us. But he can deceive us into thinking that it's still there. He can deceive us into thinking that we're still guilty before God. Or that we should have shame. Or that we should feel condemnation. Or that we should feel that we need to be punished because of the mistakes that we have made. He's trying to get us to fall back into a worldly mindset where our value and our identity is based on successes or failures. And we went through that in our whole last series um, that you can find online with that. But he's trying to tie us back into that worldly value system and to take us away from Jesus' last word uttered before his death to tell us die, it is finished. With that word, he was declaring that we are free through the blood of Christ. We no longer carry the weight of guilt or sin. Do we believe that that is true? It's one of those things that we look at Scripture and we say that it's true. We look at this word and we're like, amen, yes, it is true. And yet those doubts or those accusations from our enemy tend to creep in. And what we need to do uh, is what is encouraged in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Where it says, don't worry or be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pause there on the passage for a second. And so what's happening is, as these doubts come in, as these senses of condemnation or guilt come in from our enemy, or, or even from us falling into that worldly sense of value based on success or failure, what we're finding in this is, don't worry, or some passages will say, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. In fact, the verse before this, in verse 5, it says, rejoice. I, I tell you again, rejoice. Don't worry about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. But with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So in other words, when we find those accusations coming, when we find that, that weight of shame trying to weigh us down, or a sense of condemnation, or feeling unworthy, what we're told in Scripture is, be thankful. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. Present these things with thanksgiving, and then the peace of God, which surpassing all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now the problem is, when we're feeling condemned, when we're feeling shame, when we're feeling guilt or we're feeling inadequate before God, who feels like rejoicing in that moment? Really nobody. Because the whole goal of our enemy at that point is to make us feel downtrodden. But that isn't true. Because Scripture tells us that we're currently seated in heavenly realms with Christ Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2. That is the truth. He's trying to make us feel 
downtrodden and to accept these accusations, to accept these things. And, and as that's happening, we don't feel like rejoicing. We don't feel like being thankful. But this passage is giving us the keys to the spiritual warfare in this type of battle by rejoicing. Now, again, as we're feeling that, it's going to be hard to like put on the party hat and get the little, you know, and, and dance around. But it's with thanksgiving. And it's going back to these passages where it says, it is finished. The debt has been paid. And we can be thankful for that. And so if we're feeling condemnation or this sense of, oh, I've failed again, or I've fallen into this sin again, or I've acted out in anger again, and man, what, what a pitiful Christian that I am. That's all lies of the enemy trying to get us to accept that sense of identity. In that moment, we're able to turn back to these things and say, that's not true. Because Jesus paid the debt. And he has made me righteous. That is who I, God, thank you for that. That despite my mistake, because of what Jesus did, you call me righteous. He made Jesus to be sin, and he had no sin. So that, I might, that you might become the righteousness of God. We find scripture after scripture after scripture that declares these truths for us to hold on to. Which is why in Philippians, it continues on after saying, go to God in prayer with thanksgiving and rejoicing. We receive this peace that surpasses all understanding. Verse 8 then says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, what, if there any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. These are the things that we are now free from sin and death. And we no longer can carry the guilt of sin. The Holy Spirit will bring us um, conviction. That conviction is meant for us to acknowledge, yeah, I'm not walking in the right path right now. All that's meant to do is to kind of be that wake-up moment, right? Where you're, you're driving to somebody's house and all of a sudden you realize you just went two miles in the wrong direction. You know, as we're doing that, what's our response in that moment? Do we pull off to the side of the road and be like, oh, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did this again. And I'm just miserable at trying to get to different points in my life. And now, my friend, I'm going to be late. And, you know, what's the point of even trying to get there anymore because I'm just going to get lost again? We don't do that. The same thing is we don't like, oh, I'm on the wrong road. Let me just keep going and see where this ends up. We just turn around, which is what repentance is. Repentance is simply changing our mind and turning from the path that we were on and going back to the way towards Christ and the way that we're meant to go. And yet so many times as Christians, it would be like, okay, we're, we're driving and we find that we're on the wrong road and, and we just pull off to the side of the road and we're like, how foolish, how stupid of a Christian now I am that I'm falling into these things. And we fall into this frozen aspect where we're just kind of sitting there doing nothing because we feel like we failed at it. 
It's just as ridiculous as if we're driving to a friend's house and we pull on the side of the road because we were going the wrong way. It makes no sense. But it's the weight of shame. It's the weight of condemnation that the enemy's trying to get us to get stuck there. What Jesus did at the cross when he said to Telestai, it is finished, was given us the freedom, the grace, the mercy, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit to simply turn around and start driving towards him. Conviction is meant for that. Repentance is meant for that. It is a simple course correction and is not meant to be this burden or weight that we carry and beat ourselves up over. It has been paid. It is finished. And our battle is done by focusing and dwelling on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, and walking on the path towards those things. That we are free from the weight of sin. We are free from the guilt and condemnation of sin. That we are no longer under the accusations of the devil if we have salvation in Jesus Christ. Nothing he says over us is true or has any weight or power. As we trust Jesus' declaration that it is finished, we find life, we find life to the fullest, and we find joy in all circumstances. Because he's at work in all circumstances, and in all circumstances, it is finished. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the truth of this word. To tell us, I, it is accomplished, it is finished, it is done, it is paid. The entire basis of our relationship with you is based on that word. And I pray that the truth and fullness of that word would permeate and imprint itself on our souls that we live in the true freedom and of sons and daughters in the kingdom of God as free from sin, as the righteousness of Christ. We fully acknowledge that we could never have done this on our own, but we also want to fully avoid feeling like worms and incapable because you did not die so that we could be worms. You died so that we could be your glorious children. Lord, let us walk and live in that truth and when the assault of the enemy comes, the flaming darts, we pick up our shields of faith, our shield of trust in you. And whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, whatever is praiseworthy, the full truth of it is finished. Let us dwell on these things and then rest in the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.